you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to John chapter 9. I just said churn. Got five-letter words on my mind. I'm really into wordle. You with me on that? Okay. (laughs) John chapter 9, fascinating story about Jesus' encounter with a man who was born blind. We are going to read the first 11 verses together, but the story continues, and so we will, we will go a bit beyond that this morning. But if you'll direct your attention with me to John 9 as I read. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Well, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 6. After he said these things, he, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes, the, the blind man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said he's the one. Others were saying, no, but it looks like him. He looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, well, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes and and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. So as the story continues, what we have happening here is the Pharisees, they're in this story again, just like last week in our story from chapter 8. They are main characters in John's gospel. The Pharisees wanted, the religious leaders wanted to find Jesus. They wanted to get to the bottom of this. This verse 12 jumps right in there. Well, where is he? As soon as the man says, this man called Jesus, spread some mud on my eyes, I washed it off, then I could see. And they're like, well, where is he? We want to talk to him. Jesus had healed the man's blindness on the Sabbath, which went against the law. And just like we looked at last week in chapter 8, the religious leaders were seeking to use the law to trap Jesus. 
to use it against him. But some that were witness to all this were beginning to believe. And they were asking questions like, how can a sinful man perform such signs? I'm, I'm, I'm questioning whether or not this guy's a fake or a, an evil man. These signs are miraculous. They're wonderful. And how could a sinful man perform such signs? So the religious leaders, in an effort to, to really get to the bottom of this, they, they called in the, the blind man, the formerly blind man's parents. They went and got his parents. And they said, is this your son? And the parents were like, yes, but. <laughs> they, right as soon as they were approached, they dissociated themselves from their son. They chickened out. They were like, it is our son. But we do not know how he can see right now. You need to go ask him. I don't know what your relationship is like with your parents. This is an aside to my sermon, but I'm just thinking I, I'm, my parents would not, I don't think they would act like this. But when pressed, we can do some, some pretty desperate things. The stakes here are high, and the parents know what could happen to them if they get caught associating themselves with Jesus, and he turns out to be who the religious leaders think that he is, and someone to be avoided, someone who's causing an unnecessary ruckus, some who, someone who heals on the Sabbath. They said, go ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. So the religious leaders go get the man again. And they ask him again. And then we get to verse 25, which is one of my favorite moments in all of the stories in Scripture. The moment that John Newton was at least meditating on when he penned the first verse to the song we just sang together. Verse 25 in chapter 9, the man answered, whether or not this Jesus is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, is I was blind, and now I can see. See, this was a new thing. Blindness restored was not something that people really knew of happening. It wasn't something that the Old Testament scriptures, the stories of the faith told about. This was a new thing. This sign, this miracle speaks of Jesus doing something brand new, and that's important. And the man whose sight was restored by just telling what he's experienced, what his situation now is, he is testifying really without even knowing it to the fact that Jesus is doing something new. And it ultimately gets him kicked out of the synagogue, the very thing his parents were afraid would happen to them. This is a great story. So let's, let's talk about what this might mean for us, for the church at Harpeth Heights, for, for all of our campuses, for where we find ourselves this morning situated just a couple of weeks before we start taking commitments for the Pursue campaign, an incredible ask of you, of all of us, 
to come together like-mindedly expecting God to do great things, just like we see God doing through his son Jesus in this story in John chapter 9. God has always been doing great things, impossible things for that matter. And I believe that God is still at work just like that. Now, I, as the pastor of this church, um, get to be a member, well, I am a member of the Bellevue Chamber of Commerce. Now, that was not an honor necessarily to become a member. I am sure they would take your money as well and give you a card. Come to think of it, I don't think I got a card. I need to check on that. I was glad they welcomed me, though. I was glad that being the pastor of a church in the community was at least somewhat attractive to the chamber. Because I can imagine one of these families that are moving here that we keep telling each other about searching for a house here in Bellevue, which is quite an endeavor these days to do. Ask Oksana. Ask anybody shopping for a house. I can imagine them, you know, coming from a faraway land that we've been telling you people are coming from, California, New York, Florida, wherever, and wondering what this community is like, what this community has to offer. I, I wonder if people who come here wonder if there are good churches. You know, Chambers used to advertise for the churches. If you're old like me, you might remember this. You're coming to, to live in our town? Well, we've got good churches. Let me tell you all about them. A town had to have good churches or that town wasn't even worth considering as a place to live. But what we know now is that at least 20 churches a year are closing in these parts. And more and more people are, are, are moving here. We, we should need more good churches. The chambers should be wanting more good churches. And I'm not sure it's even on their radar. You know, churches used to bring stability to a town. Churches and schools, right? My children are part of the public school system here in Nashville, much as much is said about that on the social mediums. Caustic, vitriolic words. We can let anything get between us these days, folks. Our families choose a lot of different things for schools. And we should have patience and grace, kindness toward each of those choices. We are all trying to do the best that we can. But churches and schools, they used to speak to stability in a community. Now, perhaps certain families move into town that would tell you they wanted good churches in the neighborhood. Perhaps they were never going to enter into any of those churches, but they still wanted their town to have them, right? You know, people want to, to, to grip their warm cup of coffee on a Sunday morning around 930 and stand or sit on their porch. Maybe they're sitting with their newspaper and they want to hear the sound of church bells 
somewhere in the distance, right? Because that sound, that beautiful ding of those church bells creating whatever song or pattern they are creating that speaks to stability in the community. No offense. I mean, I'm, I know I'm talking to the folks that are here today, but we don't even come that often anymore. Now, this has always been true to an extent. When my dad was my age and leading a church as well, he's a preacher as well, he, uh, he led services on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. He would tell you he worked harder than I did. I don't know about that. Now, I recall a story of one old preacher talking about having Sunday evening service. And I was a part of a church staff in the last few years who decided to, to not have Sunday evening service anymore. So I feel the tension there. And this, this preacher was trying to lead the church into considering whether or not they should have Sunday evening service. And the deacons came together or the trustees or whoever the board was to, to make such decisions. They were adamant that Sunday evening did not need to go away. And the preacher looked at the group and said, well, I'm just tired of it just being me and my wife and my two kids right there on the front front row in attendance. And the deacon's retort was, listen, pastor, it just makes me feel good to know that whatever I'm doing whether I'm on the back nine or I'm out on my boat fishing or skiing, that my preacher is in the pulpit preaching the gospel. I'm not sure the chamber recognizes the stability that churches used to bring. I don't mean to get too personal. I'm speaking to myself as well. I'm trying to characterize the situation that we find ourselves in, folks, because I'm assuming that the outcome of our story here in chapter 9 is the outcome that we want for each of us and every person that lives among us in our community. Because the community here in our story in chapter 9, well... It's a community that's comfortable. And I'm comfortable drawing this out from this story. Sure, religion is in the community. The Pharisees are right here. Like a pack of dogs on a three-legged cat. They are on Jesus immediately. As soon as he acts in this story. And they feel like, I'm glad religion is here. I'm glad these leaders are here. I'm glad they're here keeping the peace because we sure wouldn't want to live here if they weren't here. It's stability, right? It's what, it's what those religious institutions provide. And that's characteristic of the community that the story is telling us about here. Now, listen, I, I want us to have a good reputation in our community. The church at Harpeth Heights, I want people to think about us and think of the things that we do in the community. I do. I've said from the start three years ago, I want us to be a good friend in the community. And I do wonder what people think about us. What do they think about us? Oh, those people at Harpeth Heights, they, 
They get together and read their Bibles. That fella who stands in the pulpit and tells us all those stories about his family, yeah, he does that most every week. It's good to have these churches in our community. Now, they're not for me, but I wouldn't want them to go away. See, they provide stability. Maybe people think about us that way. Maybe we are helping to provide some stability in the community and people think stable. But let me tell you something, folks. Even if we are contributing to stable, I think over time, stable loses the B and becomes stale. Stable becomes stale. See, this community in our story is okay with stable, maybe even stale, I suspect. And that is when, whether or not you can verbalize it, there is no expectation among the community that God could act or do anything new or really do anything worth doing for that matter. Things are just fine. We're stable. That's what we want. We want to be fine. We want to be stable. Now, this gentleman who encounters Jesus, he was born blind. And this fact about him, it spawns a a theological question from the disciples who are assumed in the story to be traveling with Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned? Did, 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 did he sin? Did his, did his parents sin? Like what? Give us, we, we need to know why he's blind. Why are people born with such a condition? You see, illness, infirmaries, disabilities, they were, they were thought of in this day and age as punishment for one's own sin. And, and perhaps, I, I'm actually, I'm sure that that is the case even today in some parts. I hope that is not the theological understanding of our church. I pray that it's not. Can you imagine looking at the last two years that we've all experienced through that theological lens? Please do not. But that was commonly held in the ancient world and in some places today, as we've said. And the idea that parents' sin was punished in their children was universally held as well. And the disciples, they, they want to get to the bottom. They want to discuss this matter with Jesus. This, this approach, I think, is characteristic of a stable community. It was their first question. It was their only question, for that matter, that we know of. Their first question was not, hey, Jesus, can we, could you heal him? They've already seen Jesus work miracles and signs. They know he's capable. I want to know why they didn't ask that question. Jesus, can we, can we help him see? Can you give him his sight back? They, they didn't ask that. They wanted to discuss the theology behind his lack of eyesight. Not that that's not important, but maybe it shouldn't have been their first question. Now, listen. I hope that we have some humdinger discussions in our small groups. I hope we did all last week. I hope we did this morning. If you were able to make it here at nine o'clock, which was really eight o'clock, it's so early today, right? I hope some of you have notes in your journals right now 
from your Bible study time with questions that you jotted down that didn't make it into the conversation, didn't quite come up. You didn't have time to bring them up. Maybe you're worried about bringing them up because it might, you know, spawn a 12 minute conversation and we didn't have time for that. But you're going to go back and look at those questions. You're going to research it. You're going to figure out what God might have to say in response to that question. You're going to bring it to your community and you're going to discuss it. Those are good things. And I want us to be having those conversations. I do. I want us to be a community that is wrestling with the text about who God is and, and, and what God is like. I want us to be that kind of a community. But we can't stop there. We cannot be stale. Because hardship strikes. Perhaps you're familiar with the Old Testament story about Job. Job loses everything. Job loses everything and, and, and within the book of Job, which is quite long, we have a great deal of discussion between Job and God. They're going back and forth. And Job is just outright complaining to God about his plight. Tremper Longman, one of my favorite Old Testament professors, he, he, he says this. He says, I think Job complaining is actually showing a continuing relationship with God. He's not giving up on God. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Dr. Longman says, Oksana helped lead a funeral this week on Thursday night. A way too soon funeral. Father of five in his 40s. Doctors cannot explain how he passed away. Gone way too soon. Our relationship with God and with, listen to me folks. Our relationship with God and one another, it has to go beyond questions. It has to go beyond the discussions that just lead to enlightenment. We are living in the nitty gritty, in the real world, in the world where things happen that we cannot fully explain yet, that only God can answer. We cannot stop with just talking about it. But the community that Jesus is in, that he's ministering among right here in this story, including his disciples, this is where they stop. They seem to want to get the theology right more than they want to minister, more than they want to see healing. But Jesus uses this question as an occasion to tell us and then show us something about himself. Indeed, this is one of the signs in John, one of the miracles. And remember what we've said about the signs. The, the signs help those witnessing the signs. And those 2,000 years later reading about the signs, the signs help the witness see beyond exactly what is taking place because they, they point even further down the road. They point even more clearly to who Jesus is. And what we have seen about who Jesus is is that Jesus pursues people. And I know that what John would want for this worshiping community, if he could have imagined 2000 years later, I know he would have wanted us to realize that. To assume the hands and feet of Jesus in this community for this time, in this place. And to pursue people as well. So, so how does Jesus show us? We need to pursue people. Well, I think it's right here in the story. First, Jesus sees this man. 
It's right there in verse 1. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. It might seem like an innocuous detail. I think it's rather important. He saw a man blind from birth. Think about it. Think about how cool it is to to be seen. My, my family went to see a middle school play, Aladdin, this week at the kids' school. Maybe that was last week. I can't remember the weeks. It all goes by so fast. But I remember in, in being in plays in high school. I was quite the actor. I'm kidding. But I remember wanting to know who was there to see me. Did my family come? Like it mattered. Who was there to see us perform? I could see my nine-year-old, Lewis, you know, he plays basketball in the winter on, on the weekends, on Saturday. Who's coming to my game, Dad? Who's going to be there? We want to be seen, supported. It's the way we love each other. We, we show up. But what if people don't feel support, community, belonging? One of the things that can happen when we don't is we we can retreat to other things. Maybe it's not as likely for a 9-year-old, but a 29-year-old, a 59-year-old. I mean, we can feel this way throughout our lives, and we can retreat to, to other things to get this support. So can I ask you today, what might our ailment be? What if I had a blindfold up here with me and, and we all put it on, or we all had one, we all put it on. What would be the thing written on our blindfold? I don't think there's anybody without their eyesight here, but it could be something else. A particular ailment, the thing that keeps us in spiritual darkness, the thing or things that need to be brought to light, the, that need the light of the world. Jesus, to shine on them. Is it your speech, folks? Is it the things that you say or think about in your mind about others, things that you say to others? Do you perhaps have a hard time being truthful? Is it what you eat or, or drink? Is it, is it what you watch? What would it look like for you to be truthful? What would it take to see that we don't have to misrepresent the truth to have friends? So what would it take to understand that the stress of each day, and I know life can be stressful, is stressful, that the edge that that creates, that exists at the end of so many days, doesn't have to be pacified with harmful substances? What if you're and my either acute or, and I very much don't want to be callous here, but our chronic Illnesses. What if those were not as debilitating as we may, through the world's help, come to believe that they are? What would it look like to perhaps find a way to, to live even with joy with the struggles that we all face? To, to sense the opportunity that we all have to lean on our community for support. To give these things to Jesus by sharing them with each other. 
in our community. This is, I believe, what the outcome can be of realizing that Jesus sees us as he sees this man. Second, this man chose to trust Jesus. This man never did much of anything without help from others. He was blind. Here, this is food. Eat this. Here's the pool. Wash in it. Watch your steps as you come down. Here's a cup of water for you to drink. But I'm struck in this story by the detail after he receives his sight, the way the community responds. And maybe I'm misreading this, but it frustrates me because they didn't know it was him. Do you see that? Is this the man that was blind? Is this the man that used to sit over there and now he's walking around over here? It can't be. It kind of looks like him, but is it? Is it him? And maybe there's a good reason that they don't recognize him. Maybe the details aren't in there that Jesus also changed his appearance. I don't know. But what I think is the truth is they didn't know him. They didn't really know him. He was over there, blind, not contributing, they thought, not able to contribute, they thought, wrongly. And they had never taken the time to know him. So all of a sudden he gets his sight back and he's walking around and they have no idea who he is. Even though he kept saying, I'm the one, it's me. The community didn't know him. The community had never seen him. Jesus asks him to trust him. And this man chooses to trust Jesus. Puts mud on his eyes, says, go wash in the pool. And the man does it. And he came back seeing If we trust Jesus, I believe that people can see that in our lives and will through the work of the Holy Spirit, powerful, mysterious as it is, working through us. And folks will be drawn to believe. If we trust that amazing things can happen, I believe that people will see that and believe as well. Jesus does the most amazing thing here. I say amazing I heard Mike Glenn describe it as gross this morning. It is kind of gross. I remember learning to spit when I was young. I haven't stopped. I'll spit when I jog. Probably shouldn't. Little boys learn to spit young. And Jesus spits. He makes mud and he washes it on the guy's eyes. He rubs it on the guy's eyes. Ooh. I'd go wash it off too. Verse 35, it's fascinating. The community wants the man to bring them Jesus. And he doesn't have to go find Jesus to bring to the religious leaders. Jesus finds him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. They, they excommunicated him. This man was no longer Allowed in the synagogue. He heard they'd thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the son of man? The man asked, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus answered, you've seen him. Does that give you chills? Seen him here. Here. 
for he is the one speaking with you. And verse 38 captures what I want so many people around us to hear, for us to hear and so many people around us. I believe, Lord. I believe, Lord. And he worshiped him. It's a fascinating story. I think if if we were able to zoom out 30,000 feet and see the next 10 or 20 years in these parts, I've got high hopes for what God may be able to do, is able to do through this church and churches just like ours. And I want you to have high hopes as well. I want you to expect that God can use you to see people, to help lead them to trust Jesus and be a part of worshiping communities like this who, make no mistake, can bring stability to a community but also transform magnificently a community. And my goodness, we are not going to have just traded church members for the next 10 or 20 years. We are going to believe that the gospel can reach people who have no idea what the gospel is. And their response will be a resounding because they've been seen and because they can now see Jesus Christ. I believe, Lord. And the kingdom will be more like it is supposed to be because of it. It is the most important thing you've ever been called to. And it's a whole lot better than stability. Let's pray.